Nashville sets yet another record and one of the largest real estate companies in the United States is going public and we are definitely high on tonight's wild card. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. My name is Tyler Cobble, and I'm your host uh, for this weekly show that we do here Mondays at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard, bringing you news in the world of commercial real estate from all around the country. Everything that you need to know if you're interested in commercial real estate whatsoever. So I'm going to ask you guys to bear with me a little bit tonight. I am suffering from a terrible cold, so if I sound a little funny, uh, if I trail off a little bit, uh, it's definitely not because I'm not paying attention. It's because I am dealing with a cold. So I'm hopped up on cough drops and ready to roll. So let's go ahead and dive on in to the Nashville market. So like I said, Nashville has set yet another record, uh, which I'm pretty excited to share with you all. It is, of course, in construction. So this is according to the Nashville Business Journal. The Nashville building permit values broke record last year with $4.66 billion worth of permits. Despite the pandemic, despite the world being shut down, Nashville still sets a record of the number of starts going in the world of commercial real estate. It's pretty amazing. So let's see. Greater value, greater value of building permits last year than it has in at least two decades. In the last 20 years. That's pretty remarkable considering how, how big, you know, 15, 16, 17 were. Um, and honestly, every year in, in just about every year in this economic upswing for the past 10 years. Let's see. The figure, which includes new residential, commercial, and other construction as well as repairs, is a 10.6% or nearly $447 million increase from 2019. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty amazing. Goads jumping, jumping into the, uh, to the live chat with feel better, Tyler. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I, uh, it, it's not as bad as it could be, right? So I, I had to go take a steam shower earlier and it really actually helped kind of clear it up. I woke up this morning. I was like, Oh no, how am I going to possibly jump on, uh, and go live today? Uh, but we, we figured it out. We're making it work. Uh, so breaking down 2020's numbers by segment, commercial construction permit values set a 20-year record of $2.85 billion, up 9.7% from 2019. That's pretty interesting. Residential permit values hovered around $1.09 billion, which is up 12.3% from 2019, but shy of 2014's $1.16 billion record. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, again, I know I've already said it, but considering the fact that the world was shut down last year, most people didn't know what was going on. You know, developers, contractors in Nashville kept trucking forward. I mean, it's not really a big surprise if you think about where Nashville is positioned. You know, every week we're talking about how hot Nashville is and what's really going on. Um, in this part of the world, considering where COVID is and, uh, you know, all these, all these residents are, are fleeing and business owners are fleeing these blue cities and blue states to come to uh, tax havens and business-friendly environments and business-friendly cities like Nashville and Austin and Charlotte, Atlanta. So, of course, Nashville is going to continue to go up. You know, when everybody's cooped up at home, they realize, oh, you know what? I don't really want to be stuck here anymore, and I can also now work from anywhere. So, of course, that's going to contribute to Nashville's constant growth. Um, according to Sean Buck, uh, who leads the local office of J.E. Dunn Construction, which, if you're not familiar with J.E. Dunn, is one of the largest commercial contractors out there, permits are an indicator of design and pre-development work that took place leading into the pandemic. 
So it's not a surprise that there was a lot of permit activity in the early stages. It is interesting to see that the pace remained high throughout the pandemic, indicating that there continues to be high interest in Nashville projects despite the disruption. So that's one thing to to take into consideration as well, is that, you know, these permits were all submitted for prior to the pandemic. Likely, I mean, some of them were probably submitted after the pandemic. But all of the work, all of the architectural, all of the site acquisition, the engineering, everything had already occurred. And instead of putting any of these projects on hold, it looks like most developers and contractors decided to move forward and see what they could do. Let's see. Nashville's real estate sphere has largely escaped the past year's turmoil, which, which is true of Nashville and almost every uh, crazy environment that our country finds itself in right i mean you know knock on wood but nashville just because of the way that it is i guess just because of the way that it is is a very economically insulated city you know we have a a massive education sector we have a, a huge healthcare sector uh, tech is growing entrepreneurship is growing uh, finance is growing so you've got you've got a, a pretty wide variety of businesses here we're not too dependent on any one sector which means whenever we go through a downturn like this we're likely going to have a large enough uh, percentage of the workforce still going at it that it's not really going to affect the city in a, in a majorly negative way first construction was often considered an essential service during the pandemic which allowed the projects to keep breaking down ground uh, while other businesses had to shut doors um, city success was due to investors shifting focus away from volatile markets and into markets like Nashville, where business fundamentals are very strong. I mean, again, makes sense. Like I said, they're leaving Chicago. They're leaving New York. They're leaving L.A., San Francisco. You know, these cities where it, it went from, you know, 100 to zero overnight and didn't, you know, I mean, Nashville kept chugging along. Right. I mean, Nashville has never really slowed down. Of course, we had I'd say we had three months there that, you know, we didn't really know what was going to happen. And that was probably more on the commercial side than the residential side, because residential didn't slow down whatsoever. But, you know, three months and then we're right back to it. And, and honestly, almost everybody that I talked to is going faster than they've ever gone, which makes sense. Right. We've got four point six billion dollars in permits pulled. It's crazy. Construction and land costs have also been increasing alongside Nashville's growth, which uh, could have contributed to last year's whopping permit values. That is unfortunately and painfully true. Every single deal that we're doing right now is coming back way higher than we had anticipated in terms of uh, just construction costs. But at the end of the day, there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, everybody else is having the same problem. Let's see what we got next. This is also from the Business Journal study. Investors targeting Nashville as a rising star city to park capital. Austin, one of eight rising star cities of growth markets identified by JOL. So this is interesting. Nashville is one of the most attractive cities to investors, according to a report recently published by JOL Capital Markets. Music City was one of eight rising star cities or growth markets that they identified. And let's see. These cities are becoming increasingly appealing uh, for investment opportunities and are competing with the gateway cities, L.A., New York, San Francisco, uh, for those same investor dollars. Again, makes sense. You can get better yields in Nashville. You have less volatility. 
investor dollars are going to flock to, you know, it's, I mean, investors are like water. They just follow the easiest path to make the most money. So obviously Nashville is going to be like that. Let's see. Some of the other cities that made the list were Atlanta, Austin, Charlotte, Dallas, Denver, Miami, and Raleigh. Interesting. Count those. One, two, three, four, five, six of those in the south or southeast, plus Nashville. So seven out of eight were in the south or the southeast. And Denver, I mean, you could almost lump Denver into the south. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's Denver is a great market. Interesting to see that, you know, uh, people are fleeing towards this side of the country. Let's see. Line between the gateway cities and growth markets like Nashville is likely to become more blurred in the near future. Cities such as New York City or San Francisco will remain a magnet, uh, but they will have greater competition from previously non-traditional markets. I mean, Nashville, you know, used to really be considered a, probably a tertiary market, but you know, it's been secondary for a little bit. And most investors prefer to invest in primary markets. That's why cities like New York City and San Francisco can get as low a cap rates as they possibly can because, you know, they've got plenty of, uh, plenty of demand. You've got tons of residents there. You've got tons of people wanting to open up businesses. But as soon as that changes, people don't, you know, they're going to stop, stop moving to the city. They're going to start moving out of the city, um, which that's going to spook investors. Let's see. Oh, a segment on the Today Show also named Nashville among the 10 best places to live after the pandemic. The National Association of Realtors named Music City a top 10 commercial real estate market in the U.S. So, you know, I feel like every week we're we're just going to have new accolades to keep throwing at you about Nashville. I mean, this is clearly a a very strong market. Um, I'm excited to be a part of it. It's been interesting to watch over the last really I mean, I've been in commercial real estate for seven years, but it's been interesting to watch over the last 28 years that I've lived here, uh, just how much the city's changed. You know, when I was growing up, and I feel like a, a, a grandpa saying that, well, when I was growing up in Nashville, uh, it wasn't really, it wasn't like this at all. I mean, Nashville was a small, sleepy town, shut down at 10 o'clock at night. There was nothing really to do. Um, you know, most everybody moved away to bigger cities to pursue big opportunities, uh, you know, unless they, they came from like a family owned company, in, in which case they, they stayed here. But, you know, there there or if you were in music, but there just wasn't a whole lot of, uh, you know, crazy opportunity out there. Um, I mean, it's completely changed. I, I remember in high school when we got a Chipotle, like that was a big deal getting a Chipotle. I mean, there was a line around the block and everybody was freaking out about it. And now we've got, you know, these James Beard award-winning chefs opening up restaurants here left and right. And Nashville is, you know, maybe I'll be the first to say, I'm probably not the first to say it, but I'll say it. Nashville's competing with, you know, markets like L.A. and Austin in terms of a food scene. I mean, you've got a lot of those chef-driven concepts that are, that are coming to the city that are really changing it. So it's no surprise that, that, that it's, it's having record growth levels. Let's see. The average five-year rent growth across the eight rising star cities was 37.6%, more than double the national average of 17.8%. That's wild. Think about that. If you, if you invested in Nashville or any of those other, those other seven cities in the last you know, five years ago, you would, have more than out, you would have outpaced the national average by 2x. 
pretty remarkable. JOL study markets experiencing high population growth, lower cost of living, and lower and lower than average commute times. Nashville and the other seven markets experienced population growth of at least 10% since 2010 and outpaced the national average of 7.1%. I mean, not a surprise at all. I mean, it's, it's funny. Living in Nashville, everybody talks about how, how expensive it's gotten and how, you know, how long it takes to drive everywhere. And um, everybody de- definitely talks about how much it's growing. But, you know, look, Nashville is cheap compared to other markets. You know, if you're moving from California and you own, you know, 2,000 square feet out there, you, you come into Nashville and you look at 2,000 square feet, and you're going to be blown away by how much cheaper it is. Or you'll look at the same price point and realize how much bigger of a house you can get. Moving on, 2021, in charge by the Nashville Post. Development. Each year, our in charge lists list brings together business, political, and civic leaders from all corners of the Middle Tennessee landscape. It's the 12th iteration and features roughly 500 people driving change across the region. Pretty cool to see. Um, you know, the, the, I appreciate the Nashville Post does this uh, report. It's it's always fun to see because, you know, obviously being in commercial real estate in Nashville, I know a ton of these names on this list, and everybody that's on it really is moving and shaking. A lot of them own their own companies. Um, a lot of them are market leaders for national companies. You've got everything from. Looks like most of these are yeah. They're I mean they're all developers. Um, some are some are you know managing brokers, managing principals. Um, it's it's fun to look down this list and just see all these names again because you know these these developers are, are behind some. I mean Pat Emery did Fifth and Broad or he's doing Fifth and Broad. Um, you know which is one of the biggest developments in in Nashville. Uh, Giratana he's built some of the tallest buildings. Jimmy Granberry, he's, you know, he's running one of the largest family-owned uh, real estate companies in Nashville. Chad Grout, he, he runs one of the best, I mean, best sales teams in terms of commercial real estate that, you know, Nashville has ever seen. Um, I think that he could compete with, with Atlanta. So, this is cool. And, oh, look at that face. What a, what a beautiful face. So, this was, uh, Andy threw this one in here, and... Um, actually, I had the honor of going into the Nashville Post this past week and doing an in-charge talk with them, which is uh, which was a lot of fun. It was part of their um, new series where they're they're bringing in business owners and interviewing them on on how COVID has impacted their business and you know where what they're focused on now. So there's there's if you search the the video in charge, you know Tyler Cobble in charge Nashville Post. Um, on YouTube, you can check that out. It was a really fun interview. It was about 30 minutes with William Williams of the Nashville Post. He covers a, almost every single one of the stories that we've got going out um, on all the projects that we have going on. But we talked about, you know, the lost months, as you can see, the lost months at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. Talked a little bit about the wash, which is the, the car wash development that I'm doing that we are converting into micro restaurant concepts. And we talked about Chattanooga. And why I am all in on Chattanooga. I mean, every time uh, somebody brings up Chattanooga to me, it just reinforces why I love that city so much. So, pretty exciting to see. Oh, righty then. This week, this week's Market Watch. Uh, we are going to be watching 
um, another one of the top cities, um, again, in the southeast. And I think that we've covered something in, uh, in one of the Carolinas before, but we are going to be talking about Charlotte. Uh, which is, you know, always up there with Nashville and uh, and Austin. Um, and they're like they're like sister cities, Nashville, Charlotte, um, and Austin. So, Charlotte is uh, what what the ULI um, Urban Land Institute Emerging Trends has labeled as a new boomtown, which is pretty cool. I mean, Charlotte was very similar to Nashville. It was kind of sleepy. I mean, you had some. Uh, I always knew it for basketball, but now it's. Very similar to Nashville. They've got some great F&B concepts. They've got some phenomenal breweries um, and a lot of cool businesses that are, that are moving and opening up out there. Uh, let's see. Uh, they're one of the favorite boom towns, attracting far more of their share of smart young workers. Uh, let's see. New boom towns are markets already recovering. Um, let's see. Already starting to recover from the massive job losses due to COVID. And they're among the strongest housing markets. It's pretty cool. Again, no surprise. It's in the South. Everybody's moving here. Yep, part of the affordable South, uh, along with, you know, Nashville, Raleigh, Atlanta. Let's see. They are number five in overall real estate prospects, only behind Raleigh, Durham, Austin, Nashville, and Dallas, Fort Worth. Pretty awesome to see. Um, I mean, they're ahead of... DC, they're ahead of Boston, Long Island, they're, they're ahead of Atlanta, you know, so it's really cool to like, name who's ahead of them, because it kind of helps put it in perspective, but to see who that city is beating, I mean, Charlotte is beating Atlanta in overall real estate prospects. I mean, Atlanta's crushing it. In terms of home building prospects, Atlanta is number 11. You know, shortly behind, I mean, one behind Nashville. And, I mean, gosh, Nashville's market is absolutely crushing it. So, you know, for, for Charlotte to be one behind uh, really shows how much is going on in that market. Let's see. They're what, what ULI considers one of the magnet groups um, in an 18-hour city. So Nashville, Austin, Denver, Minneapolis, uh, Portland, Oregon, Raleigh-Durham, Seattle. Those are all magnet cities, 18-hour um, cities as well. And if you're not familiar with what an 18-hour city is, that is a city that's not quite a 24-hour city, right, obviously, but they're not really sleepy anymore. There's, there's just about always something going on. They're growing fast. They've got a lot of prospects in terms of business growth and residential growth going for them. All right, local market perspective investor demand. Charlotte is ranked 4.12 out of 5. Which, is, which puts them in fourth place, just behind Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Nashville. Their development and redevelopment opportunities, they are number two. They are number two on the list, only behind Raleigh-Durham. Look at that. Carolina's coming in strong. Number two in terms of development and redevelopment opportunities. So if you're looking at developing properties or you want to get in and do you know, these major, you know, large-scale redevelopments, Charlotte's going to be a good market for you to take a look at. Looks like multifamily is, uh, it's, that's interesting, it's barely a hold market, uh, or barely a buy market. You see, it's, you know, at 56% are, are, are buying. Um, so obviously it's positive. I mean, you're being San Antonio, Columbus, Washington, D.C., Fort Lauderdale, Atlanta. Um, but you're behind Nashville, Boise, Boise. 
Boise? How is Bo- I mean, Boise is 59% buying. I wonder what's going on out there. That's really interesting. Would never have thought that Boise, Idaho would be one of the top multifamily buying uh, cities out there. But obviously, this is not about Boise. Let's keep talking about Charlotte. Wow, office property. Charlotte is low on the list uh, in terms of buying new. Looks like most of the investors, they're 57% are holding. Um, only 19% are selling. So that's a very strong hold market. So that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, that's, that's showing you that, I mean, look, only 19% of office buildings are selling or 19% of office investors are selling. Most of them are holding, you know? So again, I, office is doing really well coming out of the pandemic. Most of these investors are looking at holding their, holding their assets. Now, you could argue, well, maybe they're holding it because it lost so much value that they're waiting to, you know, they're sitting on it and making sure that it goes back up in value. But, I mean, I think that it would be tough to argue that when very comparable cities like to Charlotte, like Nashville, Raleigh-Durham, uh, you know, are very high on the buy side. I mean, 41% for Nashville, more than double. So, to me, that just says something about the, the very specific office market within Charlotte. Let's see, behind local, public, and private investment. Wow, Charlotte is number two on the list, 3.7 out of five. Only behind Dallas-Fort Worth. That's, that's a great sign. Charlotte is also, in terms of availability of debt and equity capital, they are number, what is that, five? 3.97 out of five. Behind Austin, Dallas-Fort Worth, Nashville, Boston, To put that in perspective, there's more capital wanting to go into Charlotte than Long Island, New York, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, even Raleigh-Durham, which isn't too far. I mean, that's one of the top cities that people are investing in, Raleigh-Durham. Interesting. So clearly, it's a very easy market to go invest in. Um, Local economy is unbelievably strong. They're number five behind Austin. Dallas, Fort Worth, Raleigh, Durham, and Nashville at 3.93 out of 5. That is a very green, very strong market. Again, beating D.C., beating Denver. Boise's top on the list again. All right, we're going to have to look into Boise and see what's going on there. Okay, let's move on. Uh, This is another article from Roofstock. What's attracting investors to Charlotte's real estate market in 2021? Cool. Well, you guys just heard me speculate on a whole, whole lot of reasons as to why Charlotte's doing well. Uh, but let's see what, what this report has to say. Charlotte is ranked by Realtor.com as the best real estate market in the southeastern U.S. position for growth in 2021. That's a pretty bold statement considering just about every single market in the, in the southeastern U.S. is considered some of the strongest in the country. Um, let's see. The report predicts the Charlotte real estate market will have a combined growth rate of 19%, factoring in both sales growth and growth of home prices. Wow. Uh, looks like Charlotte is one of the most populated, it is the most populated city in the state, and it's one of the fastest growing metro areas in the U.S. Looks like similar to Nashville, they have a diverse economy, quality of life, uh, strong quality of life. And the second largest financial center in the U.S. I didn't know that. Home to popular sports teams and has one of the best year-round climates in the country. I mean, you know, they're, they're about, I would imagine if you're looking at a map, I mean, Charlotte's not, it's about the same, um, what is that, longitude, 
or latitude as uh, as Nashville. So the the climate is pretty incredible, and that makes a lot of sense, you know, especially if you're moving from the north. If you're moving from California, you're going to complain about the weather anywhere else because you lived in California. But if you're moving from Chicago, Minneapolis, New York City, it's tough to beat the weather in the south. Population growth. Charlotte is named as one of the fastest growing cities by WalletHub. Let's see. It's growing faster than all the other cities in the Carolinas. With nearly 900,000 people in the city of Charlotte and over 2.6 million residents in the metropolitan area, so very comparable size to Nashville, Charlotte and Mecklenburg County have ranked near the top for population growth in the U.S. Interesting. Let's go over some of these key population stats. Charlotte has a metropolitan population of nearly 2.6 million people and is the 23rd largest metro in the metro area in the U.S. Huh, okay. Population has grown 1.74% year over year, and they had a net migration of 7,800 people in 2019. You know, it's funny, like, you you read those stats, 1.74%, 7,800 people net migration, and you're like, well, that's not that impressive. But it's, it's one of the fastest-growing metros in the southeastern U.S. Charlotte ranks fifth in the U.S. for population growth, so even bigger. Let's talk about the job market trends because that's got to be one of the key points, one of the key factors as to why people are moving there. Um, employment sector showing the fastest signs of recovery after COVID include construction, trade and transportation, financial activities, and professional and business services. Uh, No surprise. Very similar to Nashville. I know that I keep comparing uh, Charlotte to Nashville, but also I live in Nashville, and I I would imagine most of my my audience also lives in Nashville, and so it helps kind of give a perspective as to, um, you know, where the city really is. It's interesting to look at. So th- this is surprising. I, did, I don't know why I didn't know this, and it's probably because I, I haven't studied Charlotte a whole lot because I'm very focused on Tennessee, but it is home to seven Fortune 500 companies and is the country's second largest banking center after Wall Street. That's, uh, that's really interesting. They've got a high-octane blend of high-tech, white-collar, and service and distribution jobs, which, again, like Nashville, makes it a very, very diverse city, which means when you go through a COVID, you go through a 2008 financial crisis, you're going to weather it well. GDP of Charlotte is over $178.4 billion, which has grown by more than 59% in the last 10 years. Can you imagine that? It's massive. Employment has increased by 3.55% year over year. Hmm. Seventh best place for business and careers, according to Forbes. Wow. So, I mean, think about that. You know, it's, it's really interesting to see these smaller southern cities topping these lists in terms of financial and business opportunities. Right? Because, you know, when, when you watch all the movies from the 80s and 90s and, you know, you grow up, it's always like, go to the big cities, go to L.A., go to San Francisco, go to Houston, go to uh, New York City go to Chicago like those are the that's where you go to to make your career if you want to just make a lot of money and now like all these tiny little cities I mean you know Charlotte is the same size as Nashville it's got 900,000 people in it compared to well okay let's say 2.6 million in the metro area and what is what does uh, New York have like 
12 to 16 million, somewhere in that range. I mean, it's much, much bigger. Let's see. The, the, okay, so here's the seven Fortune 500 companies. Bank of America, Honeywell, Nucor, Lowe's, Duke Energy, Sonic Automotive, and Bright House Financial. It's pretty impressive. Coca-Cola Bottling Company is also headquartered there. They've got some biotech manufacturing going on. They've got major energy and tech companies. 89.8% of the residents of Charlotte hold a high school degree or higher, while 36.2% hold a bachelor's or advanced degree. That's pretty high. That's really, really good. Charlotte is a major center for NASCAR. That's, that's it. Enough said. That's all that we had. To, we could have skipped this whole article. <laughs> Obviously, being a major home to, to NASCAR, you're going to be massive. I'm making a joke. This is South. It's the South. NASCAR is huge here. Um, okay, real estate market. Let's look at this. So this is another one of the oh, voted one of the best real estate markets in 2021 by WalletHub. Best housing market in the Southeast in 2021 by Realtor.com. They expect it to remain very competitive in 2021. Home values in Charlotte have increased 9.9% year over year and projected to grow by another 10.8% in the next 12 months. Imagine if you bought a house five years ago and it's increased 10% every year. I mean, that's, that's a serious equity in your home. Over the past five years, home values in Charlotte have increased by 60%. 60%. If you bought a house for $100,000 five years ago, your house is now worth $160,000 and you didn't even have to do anything. That's what I love about real estate. You know, you can be an accidental investor, right? Like you just buy a home because that's where you want to live and now you've made 60 grand because you lived there for five years. Days on market median is 46. That's crazy. So remember when we were a few, uh, few weeks ago, we were talking about uh, Austin. And Austin has like an average like less than two weeks, uh, which is pretty crazy. Let's see. Yolanda jumped into uh, the live chat. I live in Dallas, just moved from Charlotte. Pretty interesting. Uh, Yolanda, let me know why you decided to leave Charlotte and go to Dallas. They're both great cities. I love Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, but it uh, be interesting to hear your input on that. Doug J just jumped in as well. Does North Carolina have a state income tax? Uh, yes, they do. I actually do not know what the state income tax is, but they do have a state income tax. Um, if we look at, um, if we look at, you know, like I think Tennessee, Texas, and Florida are the only states in the in the southeast, I believe. Um, let's uh, let's bring Andy in because I think that he's he's got he may be able to help answer that. Andy, there. Oh, I might have you muted. There you go. Hey, Tyler. What's going on, man? Nothing much. Yeah, that's what you got me here for, to do the off-the-cuff research. The North Carolina income tax, there's a flat state income tax, tax of 5.25%. Okay, great. So it's it's not too high, uh, but they do have a state income tax. So, uh, you know, that that's probably a, a pretty big consideration for some of these companies that are moving out of these higher tax income environments. Uh, when they're moving to the southeast but i mean clearly it's it's not a deterrent if charlotte's doing as well as it is uh you know i mean people are still moving there 
it does note here that their average effective property tax is below the national average. So that's obviously a good boost for the real estate market there as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, if they've grown 59% uh, in their GDP in the last 10 years, of course, they're probably going to have a pretty low uh, property tax. I mean, that's great. You're paying very little property taxes. Let's see. It's an attractive renter's market. We won't go too too far um, into the rest of these because I know we've spent a long, long time talking about Charlotte. Um, average rent in Charlotte is $1,276 a month, um, increasing 2% year over year. Let's see. Historic price changes and housing availability. Five-year change in home prices, 50%. Um, and is there anything else, uh, quality of life? I mean, obviously, okay, here, this is cool. Let's, let's talk about this. So key quality of life stats, cheapest city to base your tech startup. That's interesting. I want to, I want to see that compared to Chattanooga and see where that lines up because I would imagine Chattanooga is a pretty affordable city to, to base your tech startup to top tech momentum market. Okay. See that millennial moving destination. Metro area with the highest growth of women-owned firms. That's cool. I wonder what's going on out there that, that, is, that is driving that. Uh, and best regional medical group, Carolina's Medical Center. Cool. All right. Time to, di- time to dive into the future of commercial real estate. So, again, these are the articles that we think you should be paying attention to because it is going to change how we look at commercial real estate. So let's see here. JOL, foreign institutional investment in Charlotte. Uh, commercial real estate grew more than 100% from 2010 to 2014. Okay, so this is still part of the of the market watch, but let's dive into this real quick um, just to cover it. So Charlotte posted the biggest increase in foreign and institutional investment among eight identified growth markets. That's pretty wild. Um, looks like the, the report from JOL captures a big increase uh, and capital investment in the eight fastest growing cities across the U.S. So again, just another accolade to throw onto, onto Charlotte's belt. Okay, moving on to the future of CRE. So uh, this is an article from Globist.com. 2021 posed to be a seller's market for commercial real estate assets. Interesting. So that means if it's a seller's market, that means that sellers are going to have the upper hand. They will be getting higher prices. They will be getting more of their terms that they want to see. Buyers are going to have to just adhere to you know, whatever sellers want, right? All the power is in the seller's hands. So most investors plan to increase investment by at least 20% this year, but only 30% of investors on the sales side made the same claim. Interesting. So obviously there's going to be more buyers than there are sellers. Um any pricing reductions from the pandemic and economic dislocation will be short-lived. Looks like a survey from CBRE finds that 70% of respondents plan to increase investment by at least 20% this year compared to 2020, but only 30% of investors on the sales side made the same claim. That's a pretty big disconnect between buyers and sellers. And obviously, when you've got a market with more buyers and fewer sellers, it's going to drive up prices, drive up competition. It's going to be even more difficult to find deals. Um which, you know, is, is good and bad for commercial real estate, right? <coughs> it makes it really frustrating to, to try and find, <coughs> excuse me, it makes it really frustrating to try and find your next project. Uh, but if, if you're int- remotely interested in selling, it's a good opportunity, good time to. 
Let's see. Overall, only 7% of investors are reducing buying capacity or exiting the market altogether. So that's just saying right there that investor sentiment in commercial real estate is remaining very strong. Very strong. I mean, look, despite last year, despite 2020, only 7% of the investors are either buying less or leaving the market altogether. Looks like the Americas are planning to increase investment activity this year more than other regions. Interesting. Uh, The CBRE report estimates that the low rate interest environment uh, and economic recovery is driving buying demand here. That makes sense. I mean, we've got really low interest rates right now. I mean, if you're if you're in commercial real estate, it's it's almost free money, uh, which is which is crazy to see. Let's see what else we got here. Investors ramped up buying in the fourth quarter, bringing a sixty percent decrease in investment volumes to only thirty four percent, or just shy of three hundred billion dollars. Although some markets had even had an even more significant increase or decrease in investment volumes. Interesting. New York investment activity fell 50% in 2020. 50%. Could you imagine being in commercial real estate in New York and all of a sudden you're doing half the amount of activity that you, you're used to? That's wild. Lowest investment activity on record since 2010 which was a pit of the you know, financial crisis. Wow. That's interesting to see. I mean, again, it's not surprising. The, the whole city shut down. People started leaving, started moving to other places. Globally, investment volumes rebounded at the close of 2020, up 84% from the previous quarter and totaling $290 billion. I wonder what that was compared to the previous year. Oh, there we go. Global capital was down 26% at the close of 2020. Okay, this is also from Globe Street. Let's see. SBA to distribute restaurant revitalization funds in April. About time. I love that. Uh, The Restaurant Revitalization Fund is part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. So, No surprise, restaurants got hit extremely hard by COVID. And, you know, your typical, like you look at how the PPP loan was structured, how the idle loans were structured. If you didn't have W-2 employees, for the most part, it didn't really work out well for you. And so, I mean, I guess guess technically servers are W-2 employees, but their wages are technically so low because they make tips that – you know, a lot of these these workers just left and filed for unemployment. So there's there's staffing issues in the restaurant world. Most of these restaurants obviously had to shut down. Um, the ones that were that were you know had the opportunity switched to Uber Eats, Postmates. They crushed it. But it looks like they're phasing out a let's see, twenty eight point six billion dollar restaurant revitalization fund. That's awesome. So let's see here. It's part of the PPP, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, And the amounts are based on lost revenue rather than payroll. Again, like I was just saying with the payroll side of it, I mean, a lot of businesses just didn't quite qualify for the amount of money they really needed uh, because payroll was lower than your standard, you know, your typical business. 
Rescue plan language defines eligible entities as a restaurant, food stand, food truck, food cart, caterer, saloon. Awesome. I love that. There are still saloons around. Inns, taverns, bars, lounges, brew pubs, tasting rooms, tap rooms. I mean, is there... This is just getting very specific. It's brilliant. <laughs> Tasting rooms, tap rooms, licensed facility or premise of a beverage alcohol producer where the public may taste. That's a long word. Sample or purchase products and other similar places where uh, public or patrons assemble for the primary purpose of being served food or drink. You can tell an attorney came up with that whole sentence, that whole paragraph right there. Let's see, RFF provides up to $10 million per entity or $5 million per physical location. Cool. So they're really, they're really trying to help restaurants. You know, it's, it's really interesting to see how restaurants have weathered uh, the COVID pandemic. You know, some, some restaurants did really, really well. Um, you know, we had a couple of clients that opened up that absolutely crushed it. I mean, they were beating their pre-COVID, uh, their pre-COVID numbers. But not all restaurants were like that. Some, some just got absolutely crushed. And, you know, it's tough. I mean, landlords, landlords try to work with their tenants, especially when you have something going on like, like a global pandemic. But it's not always possible when, when you still have to make mortgage payments. Wow. Look at these numbers. A staggering amount of eating and drinking places. 110,000 closed long-term or for good. The majority of those permanently closed restaurants have been in operation for 16 years. The majority. Most restaurants don't make it past five. While 16% have been open for at least 30 years. Wow. Oh, here we go. Exactly what I said earlier. The restaurants that did survive shifted to off-premises food service, streamlined menus, set up outdoor dining, marketed discount deals, bundled and blended meals and sold alcohol to go they passed that in nashville and it's it's funny you know restaurant groups and bar owners have been trying to get to go alcohol in nashville for years and years then all of a sudden the pandemic hits uh metro government realizes that they're not going to be getting tax dollars from from alcohol sales anymore and i mean it was like almost overnight they they shot it through so i guess that that's one good thing that came out of the pandemic This one is from JLL. How data center demand is pushing investors to new markets. High pricing in established markets sees investors branch out. Again, not surprising. I mean, like we, like I said earlier, if you're chasing yields, you know, these markets that are getting really, really expensive, you can't really raise rents in order to make it make sense. It's time to go look somewhere else. With data center investment ramping up, heated competition in more established markets is pushing investors away. Mergers and acquisitions, let's see, hit $31 billion in 2020, which is up from $16 billion in 2019. That's impressive. It almost doubled. Europe, major markets like London, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Paris, and Dublin continue to dominate, of course. With pricing high in the more established markets, there's a logical step being taken by investors into areas where there is less competition, and evidence for potential growth. So, I mean, of course, look, that's why secondary markets like Nashville, Austin, uh, not Atlanta, uh, Charlotte are all doing so well because, you know, you you just can't get the returns in these massive cities anymore. And investors are chasing returns. 
Land for development in and around these major cities carries a premium and finding opportunities is a challenge. I mean, finding an acre of land in Nashville is not that difficult. I could drive for about five to 10 minutes and we can go find multiple acres of land. Trying to find an acre of land in Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, you know, if you're that kind of developer, good luck. I mean, you'll probably have to assemble a couple of sites and spend 10 years doing it. All right. All that data flows through data centers. For investors, this increasing reliance is serving to boost the perceived stability of the once niche sector. So look, as we move to a more digital and online world, data centers become more and more important. And let's be honest, we're not we're not going to be moving away from this digital world anytime soon, right? I mean, it's it's you know, unless there's a nuclear holocaust or something, it's just never going to happen. So Obviously, data centers are going to become more and more popular. They're going to have to be around because they have to house all of these servers that help maintain all of the, the activity behind the scenes. So let's see. Turbulence and disruption felt by other real estate sectors over the past year alongside greater use of data than ever before has brought data centers to the forefront as a resilient investment proposition. It's pretty impressive. It just makes sense. The performance of data center REITs is revealing, rising 19.2% compared to global REIT performance of negative 16.7%. Interesting. Oh, look at that. TikTok is building a major data center uh, in London. Huh. Oh, in Ireland. Sorry. It's in Ireland. Interesting. Okay, let's move on. So this is also from JLL. How on-demand grocery startups are raising the bar for urban logistics. You know, when, uh, when Amazon bought Whole Foods a few years ago, it was very clear to see the writing on the wall that we would be moving towards this grocery on-demand delivery or grocery service kind of model. It was already, it was already coming. Um, but, but having a behemoth like that move into the market really changes the public's perception of it. Let's see. With today's delivery firms promising to get groceries to consumers' doorsteps in as little as 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Can you imagine going on and like, ordering everything you need for the week and having it in 10 minutes? That's amazing. The race is on to find the right urban space in the best location to fulfill orders. So we've been talking about these urban distribution centers every time we talk about industrial, because they're very high in demand. The problem is there's not a lot of it, right? Because you think about where these distribution centers are and how there's always a higher and better use for that building or that land than industrial, right? I mean, they could be office, they could be retail, they could be multifamily. So it's really tough to find this kind of space. So of course, it's going to be a very, very high in demand. There's a big drive by new tenants, a new entrance, right into the heart of major towns and cities, says Ashley Smart, EMEA Logistics Development Director at GOL. The pandemic has accelerated the pace of change in people's shopping habits and delivery expectations, and we're now seeing the rise of on-demand culture across all age groups. That's interesting because on-demand had for the longest time really been millennials and maybe a little bit of Gen X. Um, 
But I will say, I mean, my grandparents started doing, you know, this delivery stuff uh, over COVID, right? Because, you know, they didn't necessarily want to go to the grocery store or whatever. So, you know, boomers, boomers are, uh, they're embracing delivery. They're embracing apps, uh, which is really interesting to see. Many consumers predominantly work from home or time poor professionals, it sounds like myself, in inner city urban areas are sold on the convenience at a low price point. I mean, it is, it's so convenient. I, I don't like grocery shopping. I don't really like cooking either, but you know, every now and then I do need some things and I don't really want to run by the grocery store. So for someone like me to be able to just go on an app while I'm walking out of the office to go home and to order a couple of things, press one button and it pays for it because my credit card's already on there. And then by the time I get home, somebody's delivering it is perfect for me. I mean, and I can see how that would be perfect for so many other millennials and clearly Gen Z and clearly Gen X and obviously boomers. So that's really interesting. There's real momentum and the search is on for both warehousing space and city center locations that can quickly be turned into micro fulfillment centers. Interesting. I love micro units. My, I haven't really looked into micro fulfillment centers. One route to getting the space they need is through repurposing vacant high street units. It's really tough in markets like Nashville because there's some vacancy, there's some vacancy, but uh, not, not really ideal for this kind of use. Structural changes in retail are meaning urban retail locations could present opportunities at places where fresh food is held ready for couriers. Okay. Usually on e-bikes to pick and deliver. Cool. So they're even doing electric bike delivery. Let's see, delivering on expectations. While there are opportunities for growth in Europe's evolving food delivery market, a competitive playing field and customers looking for the best deals remain key challenges. And one thing to note, I like that it clarifies it's talking about Europe. I mean, America's cities are so spread out and not dense enough that it's tough to justify um, having services like this, which is too bad, right? I mean, how convenient is it to just press a button and have groceries delivered to you? But, you know, if you live 20 minutes outside of town, uh, especially in Nashville, like 20 minutes outside of town in Nashville is a very, very far away, right? Like you're, you, you can be out of the county in 20 minutes. So, you know, obviously you wouldn't be able to take advantage of this, but uh, that's one of the many benefits of living in an urban area. All right, let's dive on in to the PE deal dive, private equity deal dive. What is going on in the world of private equity? What mergers and acquisitions are going on? Or as I teased earlier, which company is going public? Well, WeWork. WeWork is going public. They're going to become a public company in a $9 billion SPAC merger, according to Globestreet.com. The flex provider will receive $1.3 billion in cash as part of the transaction, which I'm sure that they could use. They took on some serious debt last year uh, to make it through. through. Uh, no, sorry, that was Airbnb. We work in special acquisition company BoX Acquisition Corp. have agreed to merge in a transaction that will take WeWork public and value the flex office provider at $9 billion. That's, that's pretty crazy. They will get $1.3 billion in cash to fund its growth plans in the near future, which they will need. 
I mean, the way the 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 WeWork model is just so tough to. I mean, it's it's lease arbitrage, right? Um, they're going in and leasing these really really large spaces, and then they have to try and lease it up, and then they have to try and keep it full, and then they have to try. You know, they have to give you a reason to stay there, and they got to program it and this and that. Um, I've always said that you know the best way for WeWork to stabilize itself is going to be by buying and owning its own real estate because you know at that point um it's just it's so much more secure um, especially when you see things like COVID happen sorry about that Uh, as a result WeWork has emerged as the global leader in flexible space with a value proposition that is stronger than ever over the course of 2020, WeWork improved its free cash flow by $1.6 billion through cost-cutting measures. That's crazy. Uh, they also exited all of its non-core ventures and streamlined headcount by 67% from its peak in September of 2019. It also executed over 100 lease amendments for rent reductions, deferrals, or tenant improvement allowances, resulting in an estimated $4 billion reduction in future lease payments. Interesting. I mean, I wonder why that many property owners decided to negotiate with WeWork when WeWork was already sitting on a pretty good cash position uh, to, to reduce their rent. Um, but I don't know. It does. It maybe it, does, it doesn't go too far into the detail of what that actually was. That could have been a lot of tenant improvement allowances. The company has 851 locations in 152 cities, totaling more than one million workstations. That's pretty crazy. Enterprise companies now make up more than 50% of WeWork's memberships, up from just 10% in 2015. So that means big companies make up 50% of their memberships. What a great way for them to go grow um, instead of your typical one- to five-person companies. Looks like 10% of WeWork's members have month-to-month commitments, while more than 50% have commitments longer than 12 months. Going forward, WeWork intends to expand beyond its core business through its on-demand, all-access, and platform offerings. That's pretty cool. I mean, they've got to have, I mean, obviously, if they're going to go public in a $9 billion offering, they have to have some very clear path to making money, Um, which, you know, up until this point, up until the last, like, year or so, they really hadn't done. WeWork is a $9 billion test of SPAC appetite. So this is according to Bloomberg.com. You know what, before we dive into that, I actually want to talk about SPACs because you have to know, you have to understand what a SPAC is uh, in order for any of this to make sense because it's a special purpose acquisition company. So it's not your traditional means of going public, right? So according to this article from NPR, uh, it is uh, the hottest trend on Wall Street this year. It allows company a company to go public without all of the paperwork of a traditional initial public offering. Let's see. Oh, Shaquille O'Neal's got a SPAC. Former House Speaker Paul Ryan's got a SPAC. Um, so, let's see. So, here we go. In an IPO, a company announces it wants to go public. Then it discloses a lot of details about its business operations. Which, you know, if you're WeWork, you probably don't really want to do. Uh, I, I can't imagine some of the stuff on their balance sheet or just some of the stuff that they've had going on would be, you know, would, would provide investors with a lot of confidence. 
After that, investors put money into the company in exchange for shares. A SPAC flips that process around. So investors pull their money together first with no idea what company they're investing in. The SPAC goes public as a shell company. The required disclosures are easier than those for a regular IPO, which just seems shady to me. Because a pile of money doesn't have any business operations to describe. Uh, then generally the SPAC goes out and looks for a real company that wants to go public and they merge together. The company gets the stock ticker and the pile of money much more quickly than through a normal IPO. I'm going to grab a water real quick. So the investors now own stock in a real company, not just a shell company. And the sponsor who put the work into organizing the SPAC gets a big chunk of the company as a reward. It's really interesting. Oh, look at that. They have this sort of shady origin story, says Usha Rodriguez, a professor at the University of Georgia School of Law. Today's SPACs are descended from blank check corporations of the 1980s, which really had a bad reputation. They were so infamous for scamming investors that a federal law was passed to crack down on them. Sounds like some Wolf of Wall Street stuff going on there. Along the way, the blank check model was reinvented as a SPAC with crucial safeguards for investors. For instance, if an investor didn't approve of the company a SPAC investor chose to merge with, the investor could get his or her money back plus interest. That's great. Um, so I wonder why they're rising. Look at that. In 2007, there were 66 IPO transactions. In 2020, there were 242 IPO transactions. That's remarkable. They've quadrupled since last year. Um, okay, let's see. SPACs are sparking new interest. Yeah, say that five times fast. SPACs are sparking new interest in part because they're built in advantages. The speed, control, and less uncertainty for founders who want to go public. That's particularly appealing in a year marked by volatility. Again, you've got, you've got bad numbers uh, for your company. You still want to go public and get a good valuation? Do a SPAC. This seems like a really weird loophole. Austin Russell is the CEO of Luminar, a company that makes LiDAR, technology that detects surrounding objects, sort of like radar, but with lasers for self-driving vehicles. Um, it was time to go public. Russell said that mechanically and financially, a SPAC just made sense. You can't argue with the speed. You've got, you've got through the process end to end, you know, like four months as opposed to having to spend huge time and distraction for the better part of a year or two. Sorry, that's how it's written. That just doesn't seem like a good quote. Uh, but Russell didn't agree to a SPAC until he'd seen several other very legitimate quotes. Companies go public through the process. Let's see. SPACs can also mean big bucks for the sponsors who organize them. I mean, obviously, somebody's got to be making a ton of money from doing this. Sponsors can make so much money if they complete a SPAC that some critics worry there's an incentive to merge with a mediocre company just to get their payday. Ding, ding, ding. Watch out. And that raises a big question, whether this SPAC craze will be good for investors. The stock market is booming now, and SPACs are a boom within a boom. But will that actually lead to returns? 
So, okay, now you know enough about SPACs. Let's go back and talk about this WeWork deal a little bit more um, so that, you know, now that everybody understands what a SPAC is. Bond investors have grown more confident about WeWork's prospects, but once bidden equity investors will take more convincing. If at first you don't succeed with an IPO, try again with a special purpose acquisition company. Having failed abysmally when trying to go public the traditional way in 2019, office space provider WeWork is reportedly in talks to merge with BoX Acquisition Corp. I mean, that makes it even worse, right? Like they they failed a 2019 uh, IPO. Let's let's just do a SPAC and be successful. You know, this just has red flags all over it. A SPAC transaction has obvious appeal, as my colleague Matt Levine notes. Merging with a $480 million cash shell and raising a separate pot of institutional money known as a pipe, P-I-P-E, would make WeWork less dependent on majority owner SoftBank Group Corp. for funding. Wow. So this $9 billion valuation is significantly less than the $47 billion valuation SoftBank once ascribed to the desk rental business and more in line with British rival IWG PLC, which has a $4.9 billion market value. Interesting. Uh, WeWork thought it had hit rock bottom when its initial IPO offering fell apart. The pandemic piled on the agony. Lockdowns turned city centers into ghost towns, and occupancy at its densely packed co-working spaces plummeted. Because WeWork's memberships are often cancelable at short notice, some clients opted to go without. I bet they, I, that's what they probably didn't want to share, was how many cancellations, terminations they had. Probably bad debt, too. company lost $3.2 billion last year. While those losses probably include heavy one-time restructuring costs, they would bring cumulative losses since inception to about $10 billion. So this is one thing that I've never really understood about tech companies. Uh, Probably one of the reasons I invest in real estate. I don't understand how a company can lose $10 billion and still still do an IPO worth nine. Um, But, you know, I guess there's people who are out there that are, are I don't guess. There are people out there way smarter than me dealing with all this stuff. Looks like Doug jumped in with a question. I feel like uh, I feel like open co-working is going to be tough post-COVID. Micro offices will be more viable. Doug, I completely agree, man. I mean, I you know I'm reading this whole article about how WeWork is is you know poised to to grow after COVID, and I, I, the whole time it, my my mind has been you know racing about micro office units. I mean, if you're one of these businesses that decided to leave WeWork um, and now you're starting to see micro office offerings where you can actually get your own private office space that's cool in a good area uh, for a, an equivalent price. Maybe it doesn't have all the amenities, but you've got your own private office space and you actually have a professional feel to you. Why would you go back to a WeWork? I mean, that's that's my take on it. So glad, glad you feel the same way, Doug. Uh, it takes chutzpah to try your luck with investors so soon after being emphatically rebuffed by them. Those who need to recap on WeWork's past extravagances and an appalling corporate governance. Uh, yeah, they've come under fire. Uh, can tune into a Hulu documentary next month that unpicks the whole saga. That'll be cool. We're definitely going to watch that. Um, Andy, that's your homework. <laughs> Judging by the trailer, it may test the idea that all publicity is good. Well, 
We'll see. Um, in the short term, the pandemic has forced WeWork to implement hygiene measures and cut fees. During a February investor call, IWG compared the competitive environment and co-working to the Wild West. Another rival, Notel Inc., filed for bankruptcy in January. And if I remember correctly, Notel got acquired. I can't remember if it was by C, uh, JLL or CBRE. But, I mean, you know, you've got one of the biggest commercial real estate companies in the country, if not the world, coming in here and buying up one of these co-working spaces that filed for bankruptcy. I mean, there, there's something to it. I'm not saying that the whole model is broken. I just think that a pretty significant part of this model is broken. Let's see. In theory, the post-pandemic period could spur demand for the type of flexible workspace WeWork offers. Companies are rethinking whether they really need a large headquarters and more staff, may work from home or at least part of the week. To appeal to firms that employ these occasional commuters, WeWork has started offering a pay-as-you-go option. I feel like that's just getting too complicated. I mean, you know, you, you can – it's like the, the no-tell motel. That's funny. We're talking about no-tell anyway. The no-tell motels where you can rip by the hour, um, you know, it's it's that's t- probably taking it a little too far, uh, in, in my opinion, in terms of how much you're going to have to actually manage. I mean, think about that. The nice thing about investing in commercial real estate is that you can sign longer-term leases, and you don't have to have somebody that's constantly trying to keep spaces full. If you're doing these one-day or one-week options, I mean, that's a lot of work just to keep stuff full. Let's see. Investors are excited suddenly about companies that stand to profit from the shift to hybrid working. I mean, I don't disagree with that. Look, I mean, companies are going to be changing the way that they work. I think traditional office space will shift. Uh, I just have a hard time seeing a lot of companies going, you know what, we're going to get rid of our traditional office space. We're going to, you know, let everybody get a, a WeWork membership instead of saying, hey, let's just get a smaller office space or you know, instead of having one headquarters downtown, we'll have three satellite offices in the suburbs or, or in the urban neighborhoods so that, you know, they're more accessible to our employees. Um, I think that WeWork is trying to have some sort of offering similar to that uh, just because of, uh, you know, the multiple location size. The revenue models of WeWork. Uh, this is a, uh, an article on Medium.com from CivilBits. Okay, so we company has over the years moved from lease length arbitrage to management fee collection to construction and is now pivoting back to the basics. I mean, at least they're trying to figure out how to make the model work, right? They have changed it multiple times trying to figure out how to make it profitable. WeWork has always carried a risk with its long-term leases, which could realize during economic slowdown when it would lose its short-term customers. The bubble didn't have to burst for the company to implode. A self-inflicted wound has brought the company valuation down from $47 billion to everywhere between $5 billion to nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's dropped like like a rock. Um, Co-working, in essence, has two models. An Airbnb-like concept, where the company is an intermediary platform brokering shorter-term workspace, and an operator model in which the business controls the capital asset. I think the operator model is the way to go. Um, but, you know, again, they're not calling me, asking me to be the CEO. Brands active in the former space include Pivot Desk, Breather, Liquid Space, Flexi Offices. 
these like Airbnb and booking.com are self-policing and rely heavily on customer feedback. Companies in the latter operate on the so-called Zipcar operator model used in the co-working space sector uh, by WeWork, WorkBar, Spaces, Central, Working, Grind, and others adapting to change like Regis. So there you go, Regis. I mean, Regis is kind of the classic um, micro office concept. Um, you know, they kind of they kind of have this like clean corporate feel, or at least they they typically have. And so a lot of people haven't really liked them, and, and they they still share. You know, a lot of people like them, uh, but they share a bunch of amenities, and so so some tenants just aren't interested in that level um, of sharing. Let's see. I'll skip all this. Occupancy has been going up, which is great. Looks like uh, their starting out occupancy in 2018 was 52% compared to 44% in 2016. So, I mean, that's a pretty good jump, right? I mean, that's almost 20 per, a 20% increase. Um just in terms of starting out occupancy. That's great. Okay. Um, yeah, let's, let's move on. I think, I think we've kind of talked about that um, quite enough. So moving into the world of prop tech. Prop tech are all of the technologies, the innovations that are changing the way that we look at commercial real estate. So how can we make commercial real estate more tech efficient? How can we bring it out of the 1980s? Because, you know, everybody, I mean, clearly, it's been stuck there for quite some time. Well, this article from BizNow is pretty interesting. Robots take over real estate, but not how you expect. How AI and automation may impact commercial real estate. So, AI has been a major topic here recently. My buddy, David Stoller, who started his own prop tech uh, consulting company, he used to work for an AI company, and he talks all the time about how AI is coming into commercial real estate, and it's going to really change things. Everything from, you know, I mean, think about it. The, the one that I use all the time, which is a great example and I love to use, is basically a brain for your building that realizes um, it, it keeps track of how many people are coming in and out of the building, and it controls the lighting, and it controls the HVAC. So it'll, it'll determine, you know, hey, uh, there's almost nobody in the building ever at 5, uh, but, and, you know, 10 people come in by 6.30. Well, it'll have the HVAC off at 5, and it'll start it at probably 6.15 so that people who come in at 6.30 are comfortable. And it helps keep your cost down, uh, which is obviously the name of the game when it comes to commercial real estate. Because if you can't raise rents, but you can still decrease your expenses, you're going to increase the value of your property. It's, it's, you know, decreasing expenses is just as important as increasing your rents. So let's see. Typically, the tedious task of researching and writing a credit memo for a loan can take days. Jeff Saul promises he can do the burdensome task in 10% of the time, cutting more than 50 hours of tedious manual data entry from someone's job. Interesting. Native, a new commercial real estate software platform that he co-founded, utilizes artificial intelligence and automation, which can reduce that workload. 
Wow. So he believes that Native can do so much more. We've studied the labor components of junior to mid-level CRE professionals and, and have concluded that more than 85% of the time expenditure is on, a, is on highly automatable tasks. Love that because that's very, it's very true. If you're, if you're bringing on junior brokers, it's absolutely true. Our goal is the automation of all non-subjective components of this workflow. Eventually, we hope to take on the subjective parts as well, although we believe the industry isn't quite ready for that. Well, that'd be interesting to see. So what exactly are they doing? The robots aren't just mastering clerical, low-skilled work. Companies offering robotic process automation are moving up the corporate ladder, augmenting and increasingly replacing work done by professionals, including doctors and lawyers. Okay. Obviously, commercial real estate has been very slow at adopting technology. And I wonder if that's because the average commercial real estate broker, the average commercial real estate developer is just on the older side. I mean, I think, you know, at least a few years ago, the average commercial real estate broker was in their 60s. And so think about that. I mean, the average was in their 60s. It has become much more relevant this year, but as technology continues to improve in a year of remote work and slim down headcounts have led many commercial real estate execs to think about ways to be more competitive and efficient. Peter Miskovich, uh, the managing director for JLL focused on strategy and innovation, says that AI will impact the industry, but at a much slower pace than insurance or financial services because Siri is still catching up in terms of digitization. So true. I mean, look, I started using uh, Dot Loop and DocuSign, like, or I tried to four or five years ago, and nobody wanted to use it. Everybody wanted hand signatures, which is just crazy to me. Because if you're signing a lease with somebody out of Chicago, they have to sign it, overnight it to you, then you have to get it signed by your client in person, and then you've got to scan it, and then you send out copies to everybody, whereas I could just do Dot Loop and have everybody sign it in five minutes. Just makes sense. Um, in commercial real estate, there will probably be more digital augmentation, human plus machine, than actual human replacement. I can totally see that. I mean, that's one thing that I've said about residential versus commercial real estate. Commercial real estate has a lot more, I guess, human necessity than some aspects of residential just because there is no data center. There's no centralized uh, data point where you can go in and read everything for commercial real estate. Let's see. CEO Christopher Lee, whose company produces regular industry salary and compensation analysis, told BizNow that companies are increasingly shifting a number of their functions to automation, offshoring, AI, and independent contractors. Anywhere from 70% to 80% of CEOs in other industries are looking at automation. Yeah, of course. I mean, hey, we're looking at that for some of the stuff that we're doing. He predicts 35% of the workforce will not come back to the office full-time, and automation may play a big role in that. Whether or not Lee's predictions come to pass is true technological ad adaptation is accelerating throughout the world of real estate. Yeah, I love that. I, I love seeing these advances. Let's see, a coming tsunami of data will reshape how many parts of commercial real estate operate. I mean, that's the biggest thing is you find one group that can actually congregate the data that people actually want to share their data with. I mean, I'm not going to name names. There's one behemoth out there that tries to collect a lot of data that a lot of brokers just don't want to share their data with because they don't like them. 
but you find one group that can actually figure that out, they would crush it. I mean, think about how much, uh, just how many products and how many services and stuff you can create if you actually were able to congregate the data in the world of commercial real estate and trends. In the world we're headed into, there's a much broader need for data scientists, engineers, and insights around the consolidation of data. Yep. We'll get a company like Amazon. Automation of their distribution networks hasn't resulted in fewer employees. That's interesting. It's actually led to more hires and as a result has dramatically improved the efficiency of its business, facilitating growth and expansion. We anticipate a similar dynamic unfolding in commercial real estate. All right, let's move on. So this is, uh, this is native. This is the group that we were just talking about. Um, integration and automation for commercial real estate lending. So they empower lenders to automate workflow and harness unparalleled insights by integrating a powerful backend system to native lender workflow and documents. So it looks like their product reduces time on tasks, which obviously is going to increase your ROI. They have database reporting and workflow. Um, looks like they have reimagined tools for underwriting, reporting, and pipeline management. It's pretty good. So it's, it seems like kind of a not, not necessarily a CRM, but a, a project management software as well. So, yeah, pretty cool. All right, let's dive into reading REITs. So this week, uh, we've got one very long article for you, instead of diving into multiple different ones, about how this, this downturn was different from 2008. So this is an article from Seeking Alpha REITs. This time was different. And I'm actually going to bring Andy in to, uh, to discuss this one with me. So I'll move this on up here. So REITs, this time was different. The great financial crisis resulted in long-term lasting pain for the real estate sector, but this time was different for most REITs due to harsh lessons learned from past crises, which is great to see because we mentioned earlier when we were talking about um, what was it? Uh, uh, oh my gosh. Data center REITs. You know, they mentioned that most REITs were down like 16.7% or whatever it was. So despite early struggles with rent collection, REITs, strong balance sheets and access to capital prevented the type of shareholder dilution that resulted in a lost decade for REITs and the great financial crisis is aftermath. So, Andy, I'm going to let you take it over from here. I mean, dive into REITs. Why, why was this time so different? So, essentially, Tyler, a lot of it has to deal with, first, you know, there's a big difference in the real estate sector in general, right? Remember what happened in the global financial crisis and the global crash of 2008 and 2009, right? It was primarily because of a real estate related phenomenon of commercially mortgage-backed securities and regular residential mortgage-backed securities failing. And when all of those failed, you know, we had a horrible liquidity crisis in the financial markets and essentially no one was able to get any money for any of their buildings, right? So that was the biggest issue. And then that's why we saw massive valuations drop there. In the COVID crisis, in terms of the economic downturn, it was a very different sort of um, a very different sort of 
more just a kind of a regular quote unquote issue as in you ran out of customers for all the buildings and because of that places didn't have any money right it's it's different from Lehman Brothers or another giant mega corporation completely collapsing right, right. so that that's one of the big things there and the second thing is that we also had a lot of uh, extra liquidity and extra money come in to save a lot of the industries that were hurting. You know, everyone expected, I think, Tyler, like when we were looking at real estate from last year, right, everyone was expecting, okay, there's about to be a massive wave of deals hit the market. And as we've been going over, right, over the past few episodes and earlier today even, these deals aren't coming. This is going to be a seller's market this year, right? That that doesn't mean that we have all these all these deals that are that out in the air. So REITs um, being reflective of the status of the market, really, they were saved because we have been able to really secure so much liquidity for the markets. They were just much more aggressive this time around in making sure everyone has money to keep up the real estate industry. That makes sense. I mean, it was a it was a very very different. I mean, let's look at these these uh, these charts. So, this time was different. REITs have almost fully recovered, which is pretty wild. So, 2020 total returns. Near REIT all equity REIT index was down 5.12 percent. It looks like uh, mortgage REITs. The Near REIT mortgage REIT index was down 18.77 percent, but it jumps. Let's see. Okay, so max drawdown during the pandemic on equity was uh, 42.8%, and on mortgage rates was 70%. But look at this recovery from 2020 closing lows. Equity rates have recovered 61%. Mortgage rates have recovered 148%. I mean, imagine if you bought down at the bottom there. I mean, you'd be doing really, you'd be sitting really well. You bought in April of 2020, right? I mean, that was a time when everybody was still panic selling. Uh, so why was it different? Well, I mean, as Andy said, you know, you didn't have the financial dropouts uh, that we did in 2008. There was a lot of dry powder on the sidelines. Uh, you know, investor confidence has been high. Uh, pretty interesting to, to, to have watched that. Um, let's see. Equity raise as a percent of market cap. So, so what's interesting. Chart there. Yeah, yeah, yeah what that chart Tyler essentially means like if you look 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, all of a sudden, in order to keep the REITs stable, you had to raise what five, six, seven, eight percent of your equity to to <laughs> to continue to operate your REIT. Otherwise, you'd go under. And then go go over to 2020. Look what that number is. It's 1.3 percent. I mean, essentially. No one had to raise any money outside additional money to, to bail themselves out because, you know, mostly a lot of that money was coming from the government, whether that was, you know, PPP or, or, or other, just making sure we dropped our interest rates back down to zero, refinancing your debt, whatever that may have been. That's a lot of the reason why, if you just look at that huge comparison difference, essentially the amount of equity they had to raise there and what and what we're talking about equity we're talking about shareholder dilution right so when when you're a REIT you it's just like another stock in order to raise more money you can always issue more shares 
But when you issue more shares, right, and you sell new shares, that's diluting the existing pool of shareholders who own shares in the REIT to start with. And as we all know, supply and demand, as you increase the supply, you add more shares to the market, the value is going to go down, right? So in comparison, you know, the values of REITs went down in 2008, 2009, 2010, not only because the properties were doing a lot worse, not only because there were a lot less uh, financial backing from the government and other situations, but also because they didn't have to issue a whole bunch of new equity, right? So that's another one of the major reasons there. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So this is a good article. If y'all want to dive into it a little bit further, we'll have it uh, in the show notes um, after we are done live streaming. So you can kind of dive in and check out all of these charts. I mean, we could be sitting here talking for the next hour about everything in this uh, in this article here, which is great for, for REITs. It, it goes into their collection metrics, occupancy rates. I mean, you can see here the development pipeline, um, FFO valuations. Uh, but honestly, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm running out of energy here. So I'm going to move this on to the wild card so that Andy can kind of come in and take it from here. So Andy, what is our wild card of the week? Well, guys, I appreciate you all sticking around to the very end here. And Tyler, thank you for powering through. Despite the fact that you're sick, we do appreciate you being here to help us out covering all of these news. What we'd like to do here in the wild card sector the wildcard section, what we like to do is give you guys kind of the inside scoop on one of the coolest things or something different that people aren't always talking about and thinking about for the real estate industry and helping you guys hopefully get to have a part of that or maybe participated in yourself, right? So that you can start your commercial real estate investing career. So the thing we're covering today is marijuana. As Tyler alluded to at the beginning of the stream, we're high on marijuana real estate, right? Marijuana real estate is going to be one of the biggest sectors, right? Biggest niche sectors in commercial real estate. And the importance of investing in niches in commercial real estate, and Tyler will talk about this all day long, is that investing in a niche and choosing a niche is one of the most profitable ways and best ways for you to get started in your commercial real estate investing career. So marijuana... Is, is essentially an untapped blue ocean right now. And if you can learn about it and get started in it, this might be one of the things that you want to go out and pursue for yourself. So there's this article here, Ulay Green Acreage Merge to Create a Cannabis Real Estate Giant. So if we scroll down a little bit here, we can see that these are two real estate investment trusts that have specialized in sale leaseback of industrial and re retail real estate portfolio transaction in the legal cannabis space. And so if we scroll down a little bit more, we can see that the there's a, been a huge anticipation of growth in this space, in, in cannabis, right? It, with, I don't know how many states have it legal now. I think it's 10 or 11, right? And 30 or so have decriminalized or allowed at least medical marijuana at some level. Right. So it's coming already over 50 percent, I believe, have of the states in, in the country have decriminalized or made medical marijuana legal, which is great for the, the marijuana industry and uh, anyone who wants to support the old leaf in general. So this company here has one hundred ten million dollars in cash on hand. 
a portfolio of 24 properties, and a current portfolio of $325 million just in facilities, stores, warehouses to deal with marijuana. And if we scroll down a little bit more, that might sound like a lot, $325 million to this paragraph here. But New Lake estimated that rapid growth in the industry over the next five years will necessitate $15 billion worth of an additional real estate space. So the biggest company out there right now, 300 some million dollars. We're going to need $15 billion over the next five years of marijuana-related real estate, additional to what already exists. So the biggest, what I'm trying to outline here is the biggest company is only 300 million something. And we're going to need $15 billion worth of additional real estate space in the marijuana industry. Essentially, this is an untapped market, right? There's going to be a lot of opportunity to deal with people in grow stores and warehouses and distributions and retail, whatever it may be. So as, as we're seeing here, um, there's a high margin fundamentals of the leading operators in the industry. For these operators, real estate is not a core competency or a key driver of value. Therefore, sale leasebacks have been and should remain an effective tool for the maturing cannabis industry. Because as we've talked about, you know, these guys are here to sell weed. They're not necessarily here to maintain the real estate, but there's been a sort of lack of availability for people to finance these real estate transactions or have real estate or cannabis related tenants, right? And the reason behind that is that a lot of banks and some tenant organizations and their financial groups, right? If you're owned by a private real estate company, you might have a ban. You might have a ban against doing anything that has marijuana in it, right? And so if you're trying to go around and you're going around to a city where a lot of the real estate, a lot of the stores are owned by private equity groups or whoever, you know, that group might have a ban against marijuana, any marijuana-related business. And the reason why this is even an issue at all, the reason why this is even an issue at all is because at the federal level, marijuana is still a substance, a class A or class one restricted substance, you know, the very highest level of security, right? But on state level, some states have marijuana completely legal. Now, but neither the Obama administration nor the Trump administration and definitely not the, Ob the Biden administration is going to be, you know, going after states. But technically, the federal law is supposed to supersede state law, right? That's, uh, that's civics and government 101. Federal law is supposed to supersede state law in their jurisdiction. And this is their jurisdiction. So technically, it's in a big legal limbo for these real estate companies and for marijuana companies that want to operate. Some of them can't find any space because technically, uh, it's illegal on the federal level. But if you're a savvy operator, if you can figure out to find banking relationships and finance relationships, as we're talking about on the next page, where we can promote the use of cannabis in these real estate industries, then you can make it work. So there, there's this page here about dispelling banking myths in the cannabis industry. So there's a lot of difficulty. Obviously, there's a lot of difficulty in actually allowing these cannabis com companies to get banks. And there's a big myth that any marijuana-related business can't get a bank account. But at this point, they have figured out how to be able to do it. As they say here, 
banking issues within a state have been self-inflicted. In a state of a case, case of a state like California, banks and credit unions were not as likely to bank the cannabis industry prior to January 1st, 2018, because the state legal program was not clearly defined, right? So if you were in California before 2018, it was hard to even get a bank to, to go to the bank and have a bank account. And that's difficult when you're a landlord, right? And you expect your tenants to pay you through, you know, electronic ACH rather than show up with a big wad of cash, right? So banks and credit unions can bank cannabis, but the issue, the issue is that there are regulatory challenges behind it. As you see there, check cashers, payday loans, pawn shops, guns, and ammo. They sometimes get their bank accounts shut down regardless of the fact that they're legal. Just because there's you know, difficulties surrounding their businesses that other people don't like to deal with, right? Banks are risk averse by nature, so they may not want to bank industries that will put their portfolios at risk. So we can move on to the next page here, but essentially, the, 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 key, the key factor here to understand about real estate and marijuana and banking is that you can find banking relationships, but it's hard, it's difficult. And if you're a landlord, you might have to accept the fact that this marijuana company has to pay you in cash, right? There's a chance that they're gonna have to pay you in cash. And that might be difficult and you might be sad about that. But at the end of the day, if because of that, because they cannot find space, and other facilities because no one else is leasing to them. If you're getting a 20% premium or 25% premium on your rent payment, you know, I'll, I'll go up and I'll, I'll take the cash, you know, it's going to be okay. So that's where I'm saying, especially for people who might just get be started, uh, might just get, might just be getting started or on the smaller end, right? This is where you have an opportunity to take advantage of inefficiencies in the marketplace. So this is this article here is explaining what a sale leaseback is. So if we want to scroll down a little bit lower, a sale leaseback typically occurs uh, when a tenant owns a building, right? But they don't actually want to deal with the property maintenance, right? They don't want to deal with the property tax or they own a building that's been doing well for them for a while and they want to cash out, they want to make some money. And that's a lot what's happened in the marijuana related, cannabis related real estate industry is that all of a sudden their buildings are worth a lot more. So the where the store that, you know, Joe Schmo has been operating his medical marijuana shop over the last five years in California or in Washington state, you know, all of a sudden, is worth two or three times more than he paid for it. He's like, I can cash out now, but I want to stay here, right? This is where all the customers know where I am. I filled out my store to have marijuana customers coming in, and it's right on the street corner where I where I know a lot of people are going to be wandering in, <laughs> you know, after after work or after. Uh, I don't want to say after school, but uh, let's say after work, right? You're not supposed to, you're supposed to be 21 even in these states uh, that has it legal. Anyway, so a sale leaseback can occur when they're, when the seller says, hey, I want to stay here. And essentially, you as the new owner can go in and buy this store where they had previously owned and lease it back to the same tenant, right? And it says here, a seller usually structures a transaction for a period of 10 to 15 years with options to extend. The lease period is often set for a time frame that meets the buyer's investment criteria. 
and the viability of the investment for the buyer is based on the experience and financial strength of the seller. So sale leasebacks in this, in this space could be one of the best ways for you to get in, find a guy who owns his store, right? But he wants to cash out and then you can get in and you can have a guaranteed tenant in there who's probably making you a lot of money and potentially paying you a premium on your rent. And you might have a pretty safe investment that you can go around and shop around, raise some capital in, earn yourself a fee, or even hold it for yourself, right? Because right now, the as we said before, there is a lack of supply in the real estate marijuana-related industry. And when there's a lack of supply, as we all know, prices go up. So on the, I think we have one more article here. Uh, as we said here, the marijuana business is really the real estate business. So the real estate side of the marijuana business is pretty much the most important part of the actual real estate business because, as I said, there, what Sally Vanderveer says here, with so many obstacles and regulations in the way, owning your real estate is the only real thing you can control in this industry. So either buy and develop, and what this article describes is people who go in and develop and get go through zoning and entitlements and all that kind of stuff to rezone their real estate to light industrial, which marijuana stores want to go in for distribution and retail. If they go through all that process, and then they have a financial group behind them that allows them to deal with marijuana related industries, then you can sell it to these people like Sally Vanderveer here, founder of Marijuana Cultivator and Retailer Medicine Man, and they'll have to pay you a premium because you understand their business. You understand their business, you understand their pain point, and you're providing value to them by providing them with something that they normally wouldn't be able to get. And so because of that, you're getting extra rewarded. You're getting additional compensation for that work and the risk that you're trying to do in the marijuana industry there. I actually think we do have one more article after this. Yes, right there. And this is just the pros and cons of leasing to marijuana businesses that we should cover very quickly, right? As we said there, legal for medical use in 20 states and recreational use in eight, plus the District of Columbia. So. That's 29, so I was pretty close when I said 30, right? The upside, so that's the legal regulatory uncertainty. The upside is that premium prices in a $7 billion market mean that property and asset managers who approach the situation with open eyes have the opportunity to see record profits. And I do wanna make this very clear as well. When the federal you know, guidance on marijuana is changed, and if 30 states have already changed it, at some point it's bound to change, probably within the next five to 10 years. You know, this boon is not going to last forever, right? Eventually, the regulation is going to change, and all of these problems with marijuana companies, you know, being restricted from going into certain real estate buildings or having problems with banks, that's going to go away, right? So the opportunity in this business is now is now while that supply is restricted. And so hopefully people can get in, make some money in, in some marijuana and figure it out and see what we can do in order to promote this. So that's, that's really the major point.
points that I wanted to cover, Tyler, but I do think it's very interesting seeing opportunities like this come up because of different legal issues, because of different financial accesses, access to capital, right? We've been talking about access to capital. You know, when you have access to capital, access to real estate, things are a lot easier. But when you don't, all of a sudden you have a lack of supply, demand is growing and growing. So I would expect to see this demand continue to continue to continue to grow over the next few years until we hit a peak, essentially when the federal government changes the laws there. But until then, this might be a great sector, great industry for you all to get into and to consider. Awesome. Thank you, Andy. Hey, real quick, uh, we had a question come in from Doug. Do you have an opinion on triple net rates? I figured that'd be a great question for you to ask. So out of all of the different REITs that you can invest in, what are your thoughts on triple net REITs? You know, I think triple net REITs um, are fine. It, it would depend on their valuation, right? And I we, we've been trying to cover here over the last few of the last few episodes the current valuation of REITs. And this is the thing that I kind of alluded to on, on last week. So triple net real estate is great, right? And triple net real estate, if you buy a property and you don't have to worry about any of the maintenance or the taxes and insurance, you know, things like property tax, like in Nashville, right? We had a 30% increase in our property tax, right? And this year, 2021, so in Nashville, every four years, property tax is reassessed. So property tax hasn't changed since 2017. So we're about to see another massive whack to your property tax. So if you don't have to, in, in a growing market like Nashville, I mean, tax bills could theoretically increase another 50%. I wouldn't be surprised if they did on some properties based on the demand in some industries. So, you know, if you're owning a triple net investment and you don't have to worry about that tax bill going up surprisingly 30% or 50%, then that's great. The problem with REITs, and the great thing about REITs as well is that the fundamental asset that they're valuing and they're basing the REIT, which is essentially like a stock value based off of, you know, it doesn't necessarily always reflect the current trajectory of the business that they're owning, right? So a REIT, you know, we've, we've been looking at, for example, apartment REITs have gone way, way, way up over the last year because apartments and uh, as, as well as industrial, right, have been the most resilient sectors of real estate, right? But if you compare that to how much the hospitality REITs have gone up since the bottom of the pandemic to now, they've almost doubled the amount of gains that apartments or industrial have, right? But that's because they fell so far before. So it really that's a question that we'd really have to dive into deeper and say, hey, are the, do we think they're actually overvalued at this time compared to other sectors of REITs, right? Have they gone up too much? Have they gone up too little? Are investors too confident in it? Because there's a thing in stocks and the same for REITs of being priced to perfection. And what price to perfection means is that essentially we're already at the highest price of the stock. And if you buy it in now, then no matter if there's good news or bad news, it's likely to go down because people expect the good news to happen. And if the, <laughs> if bad news come out, then this the REIT price or the stock price is going to go really down. So that's very likely to happen in a lot of these more stable, safe sectors. So I would be curious 
and this is something that we can do more research into, is try to figure out, hey, comparing the value between these different REITs right now, what do we think is the best value buying opportunity? Because it's different from actually owning that type of asset. Yeah, that's awesome, Andy. Thanks for, for diving in and taking that one. Appreciate everybody for joining us this week. Uh, thank you for giving me a little bit of leeway here as I'm dealing with a cold. Um, if you guys are watching on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. If you are listening on the podcast, which you can find under the Commercial Real Estate Investor, uh, don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you guys next week. Uh-huh.